You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. We are getting into the Word of God this morning. So why don't you turn with me to Exodus chapter 1. So Exodus chapter 1, second book of the Bible, so not too hard to find. Uh, we are going to be going through the entirety of chapter 1 today. Um, and so I'm going to be reading out of the NIV, uh, but if you're there, you can go ahead and join me, then we'll pray. Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. <clears throat> These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all the generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have come, become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and oppressed them, excuse me, and built Pithom and Ramses, as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of works in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shipra and Puah, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. And if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do and let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile and let every girl live. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. <clears throat> God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. Thank you that we have it in front of us to read and study. God, we pray that you'd speak to us, that you would show us who you are through your word, your character, what you care about, and why we should care about it also. And so, God, would you anoint our time? Would you anoint me to be your mouthpiece to communicate the truths of your word correctly and rightfully, and divide it in a way that honors you? God, would you give us understanding to your word? 
make sense of, of what it means and how it applies to our own lives. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would move us into action as your people in the midst of a world, in the midst of injustice in our world, that you would use us as your people to be ambassadors and messengers of your justice in the world. So would you do that? We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're here last week, we did somewhat of an intro into the whole book. If you weren't with us, I really encourage you to go back and listen to that and check it out just to give a greater understanding of where you're at. But in a nutshell, the story that we're reading, the book of Exodus, is the story of Israel being brought out of Egypt and into a covenant relationship with God, ultimately leading to the promised land. But it's this idea of God bringing out these people from harsh slavery into freedom, delivering them from slavery into a covenant relationship. And in Exodus, in order to fully understand what's happening, especially in this first chapter, it's important that we go back to Genesis. Right? There's a little bit of a footwork that we need to do. Because when you're reading chapter 1, Specifically, when you come to verse 7, our text this morning, when it says that the, the Hebrews or the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful, or they were fruitful and multiplied, if you know the Bible at all, if you've read the first few pages of the Bible, this should remind you of the very thing that God told Adam and Eve, told humanity that he desired for humanity. This is intended. The writer is intending this to, to set off an alarm in our minds or cue us to go back to the beginning of Genesis and be reminded of how God created the world, like his vision or his intent for humanity. Genesis 1, 26 through 28, I'll read it for you. This is the creation story. This is the narrative of how the world came to be. It says in verse 26, then God said, let us... Make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And what did he say? Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. This is God's design. God's design is that man and woman would co-rule with God over creation. They would rule over the birds and the animals and humanity. God's design for all of humanity was meant that, that, hum, that humans would flourish. They'd have babies, lots of them. They'd have families. They'd grow and they'd multiply and they'd continue to enjoy God and all that God had made. This is the intent for every human. This is God's desire. I've made man and women, they're in my image, and a part of that, my plan for them, is to have a lot of babies, to have families, to grow, to create culture, to, to flourish in my image, to enjoy me and all that I have made. But unfortunately, you know that Eden was short-lived. Right? That's Genesis 1. By Genesis 3, uh, right after that, Adam and Eve, what do they do? They sinned against God. 
They rebelled against his plan. Sin entered the world. And God's design for human flourishing was forever marred and changed. And we are dealing with it today more than we ever have, maybe. God's perfect design for humans to flourish in his image in the world as man and woman was ruined. We're still feeling the effects. But if you read on in Genesis, um, man, things got pretty horrible at times. There's utter depravity. Lives are ruined. They're being devastated by sin rather than flourishing. Rather than enjoying God the way he intended, things are a mess. Things are a mess. They're horrible. People are not flourishing. But what God did was he decided to make a covenant with a man named Abram or Abraham. That through this one man and his descendants, that there would be a great nation that would now redeem humanity. That through this man and through his offspring, a great nation would come. This is called the Abrahamic covenant. We see this in Genesis chapter 12. And what God did was he saw the depravity of humanity. He saw how horrible it was. And he promised Abraham that through his family, through that group of people, that God would be seen. That they were, to be, they were to live differently. They were to represent God and show the world who he was through their actions and their lives. That Abraham and his offspring, these people, were the children of Israel. That the children of Israel were to be the ones that God would show himself to the world. And they were the ones that were to redeem humanity. That starts in Genesis 12. By the time we see Genesis 18... God continues to build off what this family, what his people would look like in the midst of this fallen world. And in Genesis 18, God speaks to Abraham and says, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Now, it's important in light of Exodus 1, which we're going to look at a little bit deeper, that in Genesis 18, though, it's important to note that God's desire for his people was to live justly and rightly in the world and to other people. Again, humanity is to be in, is, is, is our image bearers of God's own character. And part of God's character is that he's a just God. And we see here in Genesis 18 that in order to live rightly, to live according to what God wants, according to his character, that we, as God's people, that specifically the children of Israel, were to live justly in the midst of a lot of injustice at the time. At the end of Genesis, we see that this family, right, it once was just Abraham, but now the family's grown to about 70 people. Uh, this was a large extended family, but this was no means a nation. Right By the end of Genesis, they're living in Egypt at that time. They're, because of Joseph, they're, they're good, a lot of favor there. But when Genesis ends, there's only about 70 of them. Even though God had promised that through this, through this family, a great nation would come, they weren't that big. 
But 400 years pass. Okay, so Genesis just stopped. There's a group of 70 people, God's people, the children of Israel in, in Egypt. 400 years pass. We fast forward to Exodus chapter 1, which we just read. And at first glance, you think, wow, Israel, you've done well. You, you flourished. You came to Egypt with 70 people in a couple hundred years. You've done it. There's so many babies that Pharaoh has seen you as a people. You become so innumerable that it's actually become an issue. There's so many that when we read a little bit later in Exodus that when the children of Israel were leaving Egypt, not long from chapter one, 600,000 of them were the men. So add in women and kids. Historians think about 200, two and a half million Israelites we're talking about now. 70 to two and a half million in 400 years. They're doing pretty good. This, this is, this is, these people have grown. The Israelites have grown to such an extent that this new Pharaoh is worried but you have to understand that these Israelites, even though there's many of them, these Israelites are to Egypt at the time an immigrant, ethnic minority. That's what they are. That's not their native land, Egypt. They've been there about 400 years. They're an ethnic immigrant minority. And what Pharaoh, this new ruler of this land does, is no longer are the Israelites have favor in his eyes. No longer does he think highly of them. It's a new ruler, it's a new pharaoh, and he actually imposes harsh slavery on them to the entire nation of Israel. Not a nation yet. So it's the entire people group, this ethnic minority, every single Hebrew, he imposes slave labor on and it deals harshly with them. And what pharaoh is doing this ruler at the time of Egypt to this ethnic immigrant minority is he's taking away the ability to flourish as God intended. He's completely doing away with God's intent in Genesis chapter one and what he's doing is he's imposing and forcing a system and structures in place to actually hinder and impede God's people to live how God intended. That's what's happening on a massive scale in Egypt over the last 400 years. This new pharaoh is literally stripping them of respect and honor and dignity and freedom. They're in slavery. They're in bondage. And over and over and over in history and in modern times, this has happened. Like, there, there are modern echoes of the injustice of Exodus throughout almost every culture and in every land. This is not something that's a one-off. This is not something that's new or very aware. And I wish this story wasn't so relevant. I wish this hadn't happened. I wish it wasn't so relevant to much of the world, but sadly, it's the tale of a broken, fallen, and sinful humanity. And over and over, in different cultures and in different lands over different years. Instead of people ruling with, with God over creation to promote God's will and God's desires for human flourishing, unfortunately, over and over, humans have been oppressed and, and they use other people and they've been stripped of God's design and standard for their lives. Right? We know this all too well. And it gets so bad in Egypt 
that Pharaoh orders the murder of every single Hebrew child. I mean, Pharaoh is, is the villain, is the villain. He's the oppressor. He's the tyrant. In the Bible, Pharaoh is the epitome of evil. He really is. And it, this isn't just a metaphor. This isn't just some allegory. This is ethnic cleansing. This is genocide that's happening in this land. It's horrible. It's as bad as it gets. But don't you love the Hebrew midwives? When, Hebrew, he, you know, when, when Pharaoh says, hey, you got to kill all the kids when they're born, they're like, oh, the Hebrew women are just too vigorous. They're too fast. They have babies. We get there. It's already done. We can't do anything about it. Love them. He's not help, they're not helping Pharaoh at all. But this picture in Exodus is horrible. It's the, 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 the picture that we have in Exodus is not only the epitome of injustice, but what we will see is that Exodus is also a picture of God's justice towards evil in the world. See, what Genesis and Exodus are is it gives us a framework of how man and women were created and how we as humans are to interact with one another as image bearers of God. It gives us a foundation and a framework, actually what God designed humanity to be like. And what's happening in Exodus is not okay. It's wrong because at the core, it's coming against God's design for humans to flourish. And in a nutshell, what Pharaoh is doing at this time in Egypt, he's enslaving a whole group of people politically, economically, socially, and spiritually. And what's happening here with Pharaoh in Egypt is a result of sin, right? It's a result of a breakdown of God's design, of man's rebellion against God. And it's gotten so bad that now there's sinful systems in place. There's actually like national systems in place at this time to oppress rather than encourage and promote human flourishing. Um, starting in a few chapters, we will see that God in power comes against this injustice in very swift, harsh ways. Because we have to know is that God cannot just leave things how they were. And he didn't. None of us would be okay with that. None of us would be like, oh, God, you let Pharaoh off. He's good. Like, he just needs to learn a little bit. It's actually not that bad what he's doing. We, we wouldn't be okay with that. And God wasn't either. And what we'll see is that the plagues, right, the, the, the frogs and the darkness and the gnats are even worse, is that God is actually bringing justice upon injustice. When we read them, you might be like, this is weird. Why would God do this? What this is doing is God's actually bringing justice to a land and a people. And Exodus is actually the foundation of what social and biblical justice looks like. Like, when trying to figure out what's okay and what's not okay, how do we fight injustice in the world that we see? How do we make sense of all this injustice in the world that we see every day, all day, in our community, all around the world, in our nation. What do we do with that? Exodus is what forms our theology, our understanding of what social and biblical justice should be like. And what Exodus is, and what we'll see, is the greatest biblical example in the Old Testament of redemption. It's the greatest example of redemption in all of the, New of the Old Testament, excuse me. 
Many passages in Psalms and the prophets go back to the Exodus as a paradigm for salvation. Much of the Old Testament is pointing back to this very story to show us what it means for God to be just in the midst of injustice and free a people and give them life once again. And when God frees the Israelites from this 400 years of slavery, when he frees them, when he acts just when he acts with his justice upon Pharaoh, for the first time ever, these people, this nation, these two and a half million people, for the first time are freed to live the way that God intended for them. And for the first time, they are reconstituted as a nation. That the Abrahamic covenant actually comes to pass when they're freed out of bondage. They came as a family to Egypt and they'll leave as a nation. And for Jews, this is the story that defines their very existence. The rescue that made them God's people is the story of Exodus, is this redemptive justice that happens in their midst. And again, Exodus Exodus's story is a picture of our own sinful condition. The Exodus story is our story. We too once were enslaved and in bondage to sin. The New Testament connects Exodus language to our own sin. These words are echoed in the New Testament concerning our sin, that we once were under the yoke and oppression of our slave master being sin. And sin prevents us from living into God's design. And so in the same way that the Egyptians were oppressed under Pharaoh, we too were oppressed under our own sin. God freed us out of that into a relationship with him in the same way that he freed his children out of Egypt to have a relationship with him. Romans 5, 6 through 11 tells us, For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body that was ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all, and the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul, here in Romans, he's very much connected to the Exodus story talking about mastery and slaves to sin. He's connecting our story to the Exodus story. But the ultimate example of God's justice is the cross, right? Exodus is pointing forward to the Son of God dying on our behalf because the the injustice was the penalty of sin that needed to be paid for. A grave injustice against God and against humanity as our own sin. God, though, wasn't just going to let us go. He wasn't just going to say, you know what? Don't worry about your sin. It's okay. We'll just figure it out later. God had to be just. And he paid for our sin with a life, the life of his son. 
He dealt with our sin by giving his son's life. And it was the ultimate example of love and justice to humanity. He loved us enough, but he had to deal with our sin because he's just God. He had to deal with that injustice. So he sent his son to die in our place to not only love us, but to be just in the process. But again, what's happening here in Exodus is all too real and apparent in our world over the past few millennia since this story in Egypt. And here's what we need to like gain from this. Number one is that God is just. He hates injustice. We have to know that. That is a part of his character and who he is. And he doesn't change that. There's no shadow in his turning. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's a just God. Especially when it comes to any type of sinful behavior that strips humanity of human flourishing. Respect, dignity, and honor. What we'll see is that God abhors absolutely hates what's happening in Egypt. And he is admittedly against all forms of slavery that has ever or Ill will ever exist. That has been true in the Egypt story, in the Exodus story. That is true throughout any culture, in any land, in any people group, in any race. God is admittedly against any type of slavery, political, economically, socially, or spiritually. And what the Exodus story shows us is that there is a God who saves and delivers his people from bondage. But that's number one that we need to know is that God is just and he hates injustice, especially when it comes to any type of human flourishing. Number two is that God sees and hears the plight of humanity. He's aware like, he heard their cries, he saw and had compassion on their situation. He's near to us, and he's here with us. God does not look a blind eye. God is not unaware of what's happening. He sees and hears the plight of humanity amongst this fallen world. And what he eventually does is that, number three, God acts justly. In the nicest way possible, if you are involved in any sense of being an oppressor, enslaving someone, God is against you. There is no way around that. And to be honest, because of Exodus, we should live in reverent fear of who God is if we're ending human flourishing, if we're oppressing, enslaving, taking away. What God wants for humanity, he just can't let those things go. It's against his nature. And again, sometimes he'll do it miraculously. Sometimes he'll come in and he'll bring justice in a miraculous way. But many times, we see that God brings about justice through his people, through you and I, through the centuries, through the millennia. He uses people. He uses people to do it. Number four is that God brings justice through his people. Next week, we're going to see this, this guy named Moses that, was, that even told God, 
I'm not ready. I can't even speak well. I'm not the guy. But God used him as a messenger of justice in front of a ruthless king to say, let my people go. And it wasn't easy. It was a fight. I mean, it was, it was a brutal fight for justice. But God used a man, Moses, that even in himself said, I'm not qualified and I'm not good. But guys, this is who the church should be. We're the ones to lead the charge in the world to end racism, to end modern day slavery. Like we are the people that God is going to use for human flourishing in the world because we're image bearers of our God. And what he cares about, we should care about. And what he stands for, we should stand for. Yes, I know this is sensitive and hard and gnarly and triggers a bunch of stuff, but what I hope that you would get out of this is that God cares so much about every man, woman, and child on this planet, and he always has. Always has. He cares about human flourishing. He cares about injustice and the justice of the world. And as image bearers, we're to be the ones that that pray towards this. We're to be the ones that, that fight up and stand for justice in the world. And you guys know the stories. God has done this through men and women like over the centuries. Over and over again, we've seen that God has given people a voice in these areas. And the reason why God puts people in influential and leadership capacities is not so that we would lord over and oppress and manipulate and use people, but rather God puts us in the places of leadership and as a boss and influential places in society so that we can promote God's purposes equally for all people. That is why God gives you the platform and the voice and the the community that you have so that we as God's people would bear his image to the world that desperately needs him. That is so against his design for Genesis chapter one. What happens is Exodus is happening right now in our world. And we are the ones that are supposed to be out there as God's ambassadors, fighting, praying, living for justice in this world. And man, I commend the way that men and women have done this over the centuries. What I want to do is I want us, I want to charge us to live into God's justice and be a part of seeing God's kingdom come in this way. Amen? I want us to care about what God cares about. And instead of seeing injustice, instead of just our hearts being burdened, that we actively say, God, how can I be a part of seeing your kingdom come? How can I be a part of seeing your justice come to this injustice in the world? So I know it's heavy, I know it's hard, I know it's big, I know it's complex. But my prayer is that at the fundamental, um, just the, the basic thing that you would walk away with and say, okay, God, as a man, as a woman, I'm created in your image and I wanna be what you, I wanna be what you're about. So open my eyes and put my, hand, my head and my hands and my feet to the plow to see your justice and your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen?
Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that you are a God that cares about every single person. That you don't look at any of us the way the world does. You look at every single human as your, as your beloved, as your creation, as your son and daughter, as what's most precious to you. God, we want to we have your heart for the world around us. We want to have not only your heart, but God, we pray that you would empower us to be your people, to be your people that live rightly and live justly in the midst of a really unjust and unright world. God, we'd be naive to say this is easy or simple or or not (laughs) complicated. This is so complicated. And it involves humans. And so, God, we need your help. We don't admit to be like, we have all the answers, we know how to do it right, and God, we need your help. We need you to lead us every step of the way. We need you to give us the words to speak. We need you to uh, move us and lead us by your spirit. But God, we don't want to just sit down and let the world pass us and don't do anything about it. We want to be... With love and grace, we want to be your ambassadors. We want to be your people to represent our God to this world who so desperately needs you. And so, God, as we worship you now, we want to worship you because you're good and you're God and and you're just and you're loving and you're caring. So, God, we worship you now for who you are and what you've done because you're good.